0: Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today, I'm talking to David Sobczuk about his new book, Rereading the Fossil Record: The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. In the book, Sobczuk tells a story that explains the many ways that paleontologists have interpreted the meaning and importance of fossils in light in the light of evolutionary theory. Starting with Darwin and his own dilemma concerning the fossil record, Sobczuk traces the relationships between paleontology and evolutionary theory over the course of the 20th century. As it was formulated in the, mid, in, in the mid-century, the evolutionary synthesis did not really allow paleontology to contribute to evolution, evolutionary theory, and it fell to a self-consciously revolutionary generation of paleontologists in the 1970s to argue that reading the fossil record could change the theory of evolution. Drawing on increasingly sophisticated ways of modeling and simulating evolutionary processes, as well as increasingly available computational power, paleobiologists built institutions and articulated ideas, such as punctuated equilibria, mass extinction extinction, and, and macroevolution that demonstrated how the history of life revealed by reading the fossil record needs to be incorporated into evolutionary theory hi david hi patrick welcome to the new book network's page for science technology and society Thanks so much for having me. We're talking today about your new book, Reading the Fossil Record, The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. But before we jump into it, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, um, yeah, it's kind of a a little bit of a convoluted story. I'll keep it short here. But I actually trained as a a historian of early modern mathematics uh, back in the uh, late 1990s at the University of Minnesota in the History of Science and Technology program there, and um my father was a, was a paleobiologist and in fact, uh, he, Jack Sipkowski, is, is, is one of the characters in, in this book. Um, and I really had no interest in, in writing, uh, uh, you know, writing a book or, or doing any work on the history of, of modern paleontology or biology, uh, really until I finished up my PhD at Minnesota, which was on 17th century mathematics and Uh, My father died in 1999, and in the process of um, helping an archivist at the American Philosophical Society collect his papers to be deposited there, uh, I, I just started reading things. You know, I'm a historian, and that's what we do when we when we've got a bunch of letters and manuscripts uh, in in front of us. I started looking at things as as I was putting them into boxes, and I realized, wow, there's some some really interesting stuff here. There was correspondence with people like Stephen Jay Gould, and uh, and and it it seemed like the period of time when uh, when my dad had been active in the, the 1970s and, and 1980s, especially, uh, was just a really fascinating and exciting time in in paleontology. And so I, I thought, well. You know, there's there's at least a paper here, uh, and I had a postdoc at the time at at Oberlin College, uh, and so I was sort of thinking about what my next project would be, and I had a little time, and so I, I wrote a paper uh, about this era, the 1970s in in paleobiology, when um, when people like Stephen Jay Gould really. Advocated uh, very strongly for paleontology to be a kind of independent evolutionary discipline, and I had so much fun writing that paper, I decided to write a book and and basically gave up being an early modernist and and became full-time historian of uh, modern biology and and uh, and paleontology. Um, And uh, and yeah, really kind of a transition in my in my intellectual. A career, but one that's that's really uh, brought me a lot of pleasure it's been it's been a lot of fun working on this stuff
0: okay so uh, did you do a lot of Latin at least as an early modern mathematician? Yes, yeah, really yeah. math-
1: I, I had to do all I had to do all that stuff and uh, you know i it's fun and I still love the early modern period I mean yeah. I still still read the literature and yeah. and and i've i you know i I love teaching scientific revolution and things like that um but uh, um yeah I mean that was I, yeah. One, one could say that that, that was uh, all for naught, because I use most of that training yeah. in, in what I do now, although it probably informs
0: me somewhere in the background. Yeah. Although I was going to say that at least it's not entirely for naught, because at least there's still, you know, some Latin in paleontology. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, they're right, exactly. Yeah.
0: The, the, the taxonomic names. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, you, I mean, the book is mostly about the 1970s, but you, you kind of argue that, um, in I think, in order to understand the relationship between evolutionary thinking and uh, paleontology, you need to go back to Darwin. So can you say a little bit about how Darwin thinks about fossils and what sort of the legacy uh, of that is? Sure. Yeah,
1: well, you know, and of course, you know, fossils are, are, are crucially important for uh, evolutionary theory, and they were very, very important to, to Darwin. Um, you know, fossils had... had um, First, really begun to be seen as biologically significant entities uh, in the era, era of geology uh, before Darwin. So in the uh, 1820s, 1830s, fossils are, are being primarily used as, as markers for stratigraphy, you know, as, as markers to tell us, um, relatively speaking, how old different layers of the earth are. But beginning in the 1830s and 1840s, especially in, in Germany and France and England, um, geologists began to, to begin to take fossils seriously as, as telling us something about the history of life and um, and perhaps something about the directionality in the history of life. Although of course, for, for most scientists, not as uh, indications of, of evolution uh, and, and Darwin, uh, During his, his, his beagle voyage and and afterwards took a great interest in fossils. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say that they were, you know, crucial pieces of evidence in convincing him of the reality of, of descent with modification uh, and evolution. So they're, they're the physical evidence that, that tells Darwin that, that uh, evolution has, has taken place. But the, um, kind of the, the interesting paradox uh, which is one of the, the hinges on which my book turns, is that despite the fact that, that Darwin recognized fossils as being tremendously important for establishing the reality of evolution, um, he didn't really believe that the fossil record was, was complete enough for paleontology to make much of an independent contribution to uh, evolutionary theory. So he thought that uh, you know, there are too many gaps, too much incompleteness. Darwin, of course, has a whole chapter in the in The Origin of Species about the imperfection of the geological record, where he sort of apologizes for it. Says, well, you know, um if we had a perfect fossil record, we would see this gradual succession of forms from the you know very first organisms up to the up to the present, but but we don't. So the best that we can do is is look to those um, those particular cases where we do have a, a complete succession but don't expect to find uh, you know transitional forms throughout the fossil record. And as I argue at least, um, you know this this was a kind of pessimistic um, diagnosis for the development of modern paleontology. you know paleontology is told basically that you know it, it's capable of presenting interesting, uh, examples, uh, of, of evolutionary succession, but it doesn't, it won't have much to say on its own. And certainly by the, by the early part of the 20th century and up into the modern evolutionary synthesis, paleontologists were really kind of relegated to a backseat role when it, when it came to discussions of evolutionary theory. And, you know, in part, I, I lay that blame, if you want to, want to say blame, uh, you know, right at Darwin's door.
0: Okay. Um... So does anything change by the evolutionary synthesis? What's the relationship that sort of... I mean, yeah. this is a, it's a major change in the way that people think about evolution. Does it change the way that people think about the relationship between evolutionary theory and paleontology at all?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's important to point out that 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 despite the fact that kind of mainstream biology uh, took a fairly dim view of the contribution that, that paleontology could make to, to evolutionary thought, paleontologists themselves from... The period after Darwin from the 1880s, 1890s up through the 1930s and 40s were making statements about evolution on fossils. Uh, it's just that, that their, their statements about evolution, uh, weren't really being heard or taken very seriously by the, um, you know, developed profession of, of, of modern evolutionary biology. Uh, and, and part of the problem there is that many of these paleontologists favored uh non darwinian mechanisms, mm. things like um, um, you know Lamarckian evolution or orthogenesis. Uh, and that kind of kept them kept them marginal in the in the community of evolutionary biology. But by the by the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, I think two things had happened. The the first was that more fossils had been collected. So you know the more fossils you collect, the, the more complete your your and the more you're going to be able to say, or at least the more confidence you're going to have about what you can say about evolution based on the fossil record. And then the second thing was that there were uh, some important pioneering paleontologists, both in, in Europe and in the United States. Uh, in Europe, people like the uh, Austrian paleontologist Othien Abel, um, and, in, and in the United States, uh, of course, George Gaylord Simpson, um, who really made a, a strong commitment to um, have dial- Biologists and to to trying to um, you know really incorporate their work into some of the exciting developments that were going on in in you know genetics and and other areas of biology that were uh, leading to the modern synthesis.
0: So how did Simpson in particular think about um, the co- possible contribution of paleontology to evolutionary understanding?
1: Well, I think Simpson, um, you know, Simpson's probably the most important figure in the uh, in the history of, in the twentieth century history of evolutionary paleontology because he's the one who really gets the ball rolling. Um, he was one of the first people to begin to refer to what he was doing as paleobiology, which was was. Actually he didn't invent it; had been used by some of those uh, German paleontologists earlier in the century. But but Simpson was also one of the only people that read in in the United States or in the uh, in the Anglo-American uh, paleontological community who read paleontology, um, and so he picked up a lot of ideas from from the Germans. Um, and and Simpson um, Simpson really uh, it was. In part because of his position at uh, the American Museum of, of Natural History, uh, you know, he ended up having colleagues like Ernst Meyer and Theodosius Dobzhansky, and you know, he got to know these people personally uh, because the the AMNH uh, is affiliated with Columbia University, where um, where both Dobzhansky and Mayr um, you know passed through at various points in their in their career, um, and so he got to know these people personally um, and. He also uh I think he, he just personally had ambitions for, for himself and for the field. Uh he didn't want what paleontologists were doing to be marginalized in journals that were read only by paleontologists, he really wanted biologists to take uh to take the work work seriously. And so he was committed not to reaching out to biologists, to incorporating uh biological contributions to evolutionary theory into paleontology. Uh, but also to begin to use some of that biologists were were using at the time so to make paleontology more uh quantitative uh and to begin uh, exploring what one could do with uh more sophisticated mathematics and and even and even modeling uh in uh applying analysis to the history of the fossil record
0: mm, okay and actually this theme of sort of the need to build institutions um, is something that I think you developed really well through the book and, and we can return to a little bit. Um, did he? Tra- did Simpson train graduate students? I mean, that's one way of institutional building.
1: He didn't have a lot of graduate students, but, but curators at the American Museum could be on uh, on dissertation committees at Columbia and, uh, and indeed could... <clears throat> and he did, Simpson did direct uh, a, a few graduate theses, although he didn't do a lot. He was not, uh, I don't think, deeply committed as a as a teacher. Uh, I think he saw his, his more as a as a researcher. Um, one of Simpson's students was uh, the uh, very eclectic evolutionary biologist uh, Lee Van Valen, who passed away, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, was a, a long time professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, Van Balen actually shared uh, Simpson and Dobzhansky as his as his mentors. So I mean, there's a great example of um, you know, direct through teaching and, and directing uh, graduate how how Simpson was integrating what he was doing with what obviously one of the uh, most important biologists of the synthesis was 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 doing. Okay, so sorry. Um, but uh you know he had a more indirect influence i think on on the generation of paleontologists who were coming up as in the especially in the 1960s who who uh all of whom read his 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 book uh, i mean that was required reading really for for young paleontologists uh in the 50s and 60s and 70s and so i'd say he'd had he had a, a profound influence on young paleontologists but in a more indirect sense
0: okay so the other um pioneering sort of paleontologists in this time period that you think is really influential is uh, Norman Newell. How did he uh, contribute to the growth of uh, paleobiology? Newell was,
1: Newell was really, um, uh, very much kind of Simpson's partner in, in this enterprise of, of bringing paleontology into evolutionary biology, especially in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, Simpson subverted paleobiology. So, um, working with was from the vertebrate, uh, fossil record. Uh, and, uh, of course, vertebrate fossils are... Fo-
0: hey David, welcome back. Sorry about that interruption. Oh, no, no problem at all. Okay. Before, um, we left or were interrupted, you were talking about, uh, Norman Newell and his kind of broader significance in the, in the story.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. and, and, and what I was saying is that is that uh, Newell and Simpson really kind of need to be seen as a team in in this earlier period of the establishment of of paleobiology in the in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, Simpson was a was a vertebrate paleontologist, so um, the fossil record that Simpson was studying was, of course, the the vertebrate fossil record and. Um, one of the one of the issues um, between vertebrate and invertebrate paleontology is that there are a lot more invertebrate fossils. So, you know uh, just think about all the uh, tiny little shells that you see, let's say in um, uh, you know in limestone or something like that. I mean there are there are orders of magnitude more invertebrate remains than than vertebrate remains. It, it takes kind of a lot actually, for a large animal to get uh, fossilized and preserved. So um so what Simpson was trying to do was very ambitious but his own research uh wasn't necessarily the best uh, didn't necessarily provide the best empirical evidence to fully document the history of life and Simpson thought it was very important to recruit a an invertebrate paleontologist uh into uh the American Museum and and into sort of a, the the Kind of proto movement that he was beginning. So Simpson directly hired Norman Newell in the in the 1940s, shortly after the the Second World War, um, and brought Newell to the to the museum as a as a young paleontologist. And uh, Newell really, I think, developed under Simpson's wing in a lot of ways in in the first five or ten years that he was there. Uh, and and ultimately, what what Newell did was essentially to carry on. The kind of work Simpson was doing, and that is uh, work that was uh, quantitative and theoretical, and which was geared towards reconstructing large-scale patterns in the history of life. Only Newell was doing it with invertebrate fossils, and uh, f- for this reason, uh, in in many respects, I would say that that Newell was just import- as important, if not even more important, than Simpson uh to later generations of of paleobiologists who really would focus um predominantly on the invertebrate fossil record. So the kind of work that, that Newell was doing documenting large scale patterns of evolutionary change in um in you know the marine fossil record in in, in marine fossils uh was uh, exactly what was continued in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, in the later chapters that I describe in my book when, uh, paleobiology really goes through a kind of revolutionary phase. And, and Newell also trained, uh, more students than, than Simpson did. And, and some of the students that he trained went on really to be the, the leaders in this next generation. Uh, uh, probably the two most prominent being, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and, uh, Niles Eldridge, who together were uh, the the people that came up with the theory of punctuated equilibria.
0: Right. Um, let me ask you a question about them. So, I mean, I think we often think about biology as a discipline that's supposed to take time and history seriously. Right. And I guess so I'm wondering about Simpson and Newell. Did they want to sort of incorporate paleontology with biology because they, were, they just thought that biology was cool? Or did they think that paleontology had something, I guess, important to contribute about the history of life to the the understanding of evolution?
1: Sure. Um, Well, um, Simpson's first book, uh, which is considered still by many to be uh, his most important contribution, Tempo and Mode in Evolution, which was published in uh, 1945 uh, in the famous uh, Columbia University Press um, biology series that also had Dobzhansky's uh, Genetics in the Origin of Species and Myers' Systematic in the Origin of Species and, and, and other important books um, made the case uh, that paleontology offers a fourth dimension to evolutionary biology, and that fourth dimension is time. So um, I, the answer to your question is is that Simpson absolutely thought that. Uh, time was the, you know, significant dimension that that paleontology could add, and that it added a perspective to evolutionary biology that was simply not there uh, otherwise. So, so paleontology wasn't just wasn't just, um, you know, adding something interesting. Uh, that this synthesis of of paleontology and biology wasn't just a good idea for uh, institutional purposes or something like that, but but rather that that paleontology offered something vital crucial and 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 missing to the story of the history of life.
0: Okay. Um, do biologists agree with them?
1: Well, I mean, you know, that's 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 a good question. And that's the um you know that's kind of the sixty-four thousand dollar question uh throughout the history that I'm describing in my book. And the answer to that is that some did and some didn't. Um, and and it was complicated and, and contested along the way. Simpson, of course, was one of the is considered one of the architects of the modern evolutionary synthesis, along with Meyer and Dobzhansky. And he was very much an equal partner in terms of the organizational role that he played in, say, establishing the Society for the Study of Evolution, um, founding the journal Evolution um, and, uh, kind of organizing the agenda of the modern synthesis, uh, Meyer and Dobzhansky and, and other major, uh, framers of the modern synthesis, uh, Sewell Wright, uh, and others, uh, certainly respected him as a scientist. Um, the, how much though did they, did they accept the, um, kind of the theoretical intervention that he was trying to make is another mm-hmm. story together. Uh, and, and what you see is that, you know, in some cases and, and at some times, biologists were quite receptive to what people like Simpson had to say. But there was a constant pushback also from the biologists that, that goes from the 1940s all the way, um, I'd say, even up to the present, uh, in being somewhat uncomfortable with the notion that paleontology has something autonomous, uh, say, about, about evolutionary history. Uh, and particularly, I think there's a deep seated skepticism or mistrust among biologists that perhaps what paleontologists are really trying to say is that there are different evolutionary mechanisms in operation that paleontology has access to and and there's some i think nervousness that that paleontologists are actually trying to talk about evolutionary mechanisms that are different from the ones that uh that you know um Geneticists or other biologists study, and so that that back and forth has really characterized the history of the relationship between paleontology and biology over the last fifty sixty seventy years
0: okay and we'll get we'll get there <laughs> in, in particular, um, but maybe before we get to the to the, sort of the revolutionary characters themselves um, I mean the other thing that tends out to be very very important is really just the sophisticated modeling that um, the self declared paleo biologists of the 1970s um, bring to the table. Um, And and you sort of talk about how in the 50s and 60s, there's a growth of of techniques for mathematically modeling biological phenomena, Um, things like morphometrics and theoretical morphology and island biogeography and paleoecology. How do those, I mean, what are they doing that's new and how does that knowledge make its way into paleobiology?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, I think, really interesting characteristics of this paleobiology movement is the extent to which paleobiologists were borrowing um, ideas models techniques methods from other disciplines and and uh you know say uh, uh island biogeography which develops independently in the 1960s is is crucially important to to paleobiology but it's you know it's not a theory from paleontology um you know in some cases <clears throat> in some cases these these Approaches were were really new and are original. So, so thinking about, um, say, assemblage, assemblages of fossils as communities uh, in in paleoecology is a, is a really new way of thinking about the history of life, uh, and that's something that develops in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, theoretical morphology, which is uh, an approach to understanding. Uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of mathematical relationships, uh, that govern the formal characteristics of organisms, say the, um, the relationship between the, um, the, the height and the width of a, of a, a shell or something like that. That's actually a very old, um, field, uh, an old tradition that goes back into the, into the 19th century. Um, but, um. In the hands of paleontologists in the 1960s especially, um, and here uh, the paleontologist David Raup, uh, who who had a long career at the University of Chicago, was uh, one of the the real movers, um, were able to adapt new technologies, um, computers, Mm -hmm. uh, most prominently to the study of old questions. So, for example, it had been known for a long time that, that there are particular equations that govern the ideal shape of uh, certain kinds of shells and those equations were from from the 18 uh, 1840s uh, but what Ralph was able to do was put those equations into a computer and produce uh, these these wonderful simulations of ideal uh, shell types uh, and so it's an interesting marriage of old ideas and new technologies that uh, that kind of Help produce this this uh, this new approach to the study of the fossil record using you know using in some cases simulations rather than relying just on uh, the fossils that were being dug up out of the ground.
0: Okay. And so I mean, it's just that Ralph learns this and then he trains people and and realizes that it has significance.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Ralph kind of. Um, Ralph kind of falls into this accidentally. Uh, he was trained as a, as a fairly straightforward uh, invertebrate paleontologist. Um, he, he worked at Harvard uh, under uh, Bernard Kummel, who was a, 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 a longtime Harvard professor, uh, who actually was Norman Newell's first student. Um, but Ralph was trained in, in, in fairly traditional approaches to invertebrate paleontology, um, and he kind of happened on computers accidentally uh, and I think that um, you know Ralph was always interested in iconoclastic ideas. Um, he was always the person who wanted to ask um, the question that would potentially upset the conventional wisdom. Um, and so um, I think that um, that that Ralph was always just kind of pursuing the interesting questions uh, that popped into his head uh, without really thinking about launching a movement and the students that Raup trained were um, uh, kind of an eclectic group of group of people um, but but Roup tended to just always for some reason to have his uh you know kind of finger on the on the pulse of 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 what was new and and interesting in the field so in the 1960s it was uh this theoretical morphology which was um, uh, a, a kind of a, a rekindling of interest in the, uh, in the mathematical study of, as, as I said, the, the, the kind of formal properties or characteristics of, uh, of biological forms. And, um, this is something that goes back to Darcy Wentworth Thompson in the, in the, in the early 20th century. Um, and Prout spent several years making these pretty, uh, computer models, shells, uh, and then kind of lost interest in that and moved on to something else um and and that was typical of Raup's career he 'd work on something for several years and then he 'd find something else that was interesting and kind of drop what he 'd been working on before um and so uh you know, Raup, Raup as opposed to some of the other people that that um that we'll be we t- we'll be talking about later i don 't think was really committed so much to movement building as it was to just um asking questions that had asked before looking at things looking at things in a new perspective okay.
0: He certainly has a long and really dynamic career that remains relevant all the way, I think, to the to the end of his research life, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you use this phrase about people concerned to launch a movement, and several of the characters, I mean, the important characters associated with um, paleobiology in the 1970s, yeah. self consciously think about themselves as revolutionaries, and you know, right. some of them have read Kuhn, and they you know think right. seem to think about science in, th- in those exact terms. Yeah. Um, what exactly is it that they're revolting against? Sure. Um,
1: well, you know, some of it is just a continuation of what uh, people like Simpson and Newell were were themselves rebelling against. Although I don't think that either Simpson or Newell would have would have uh, thought of himself as a as a revolutionary. You know, just this idea that um, you know paleontology is uh, the biological equivalent of stamp collecting, and that you know paleontologists have nothing interesting to say to to biologists. But but I think that. I think there's more to it and something that I didn't get very deeply into in the book because it's very difficult to document is that of course the late 1960s and 1970s are a you know an era of rebellion and and revolution you know politically and socially and um, some of these people, Stephen J. Gould in particular, uh, you know, were very much part of that uh, that culture of of rebellion. So I think that you know the the 1960s and 70s, um, it was a good time to be pushing back against what you know the old graybeards had you know had to say. And so um, I think for for somebody like Simps- uh, somebody like Gould, excuse me, you know, I think he would have been a rebel in whatever field he was in. Mm-hmm. That was part of his attempt. <sighs> And he happened to be a paleontologist and, uh, and so, um, you know, his, his entire career was spent kind of campaigning against orthodoxy, uh, in, in a, you know, in a, in a variety of, in a variety of forms. Unlike somebody like Dave Rout, who I think, um, you know, didn't see what he was doing as, as part of any kind of broader social or political movement. I think Gould very much did see what he was doing as, uh, as you know the work in paleontology as connected to broader you know protest uh, a co- broader cultural protest and and rebellion in in politics and 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 culture um but but you know to get back to the question you asked what were they rebelling against i mean specifically it was this notion that paleontology is um really just a subfield of geology uh, that it didn't have anything relevant to say to biology, and that uh the the Evidence that, that paleontologists were working for, working with wasn't relevant to, uh, the, the really exciting fields in biology like, uh, population genetics and, and, and eventually, um, uh, molecular, molecular biology. Okay.
0: So that, I mean, I think tells us about the revolt against what biologists think of paleontology. How do pa- paleontologists feel about, um, but the established community, sort of in the 50s and 60s, how do they feel about this desire to incorporate all of these mathematical techniques and the de- desire to incorporate evolutionary theory, I guess, into paleontology?
1: Sure, yeah, and that's a great question. Um, because, of course, people like Gould were, were not just rebelling against biology, they were also rebe- rebelling against paleontologists. So, um, uh, the, you know, the, the paleobiology movement did, uh, certainly in the 1970s, very much have a kind of you know, us against the world mentality because it's a small group of people who are not only, uh, questioning the status of, of paleontology within evolutionary biology, but they're also trying to change in some ways the definition of what paleontology was. And this did not sit very well with a lot of more traditional paleontologists who really thought that what a paleontologist did was, uh, you know, dig up and describe fossil organisms, uh, right you know, monographs about uh, a particular, uh, you know, taxonomic group, and maybe at the end of a very long career say something slightly more general about the history of life, but certainly not make large-scale pronouncements about uh, the tempo and mode of, of, of evolution. So, yeah, the, 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 the paleobiologists, certainly by the 1970s, were Kind of getting it from both directions. They were they were getting resistance from from biologists, and they were getting resistance from from uh, from pa- other paleontologists. And um, and I think that that certainly heightened the sense for people like Gould uh, that uh, you know that that what they were doing was was radical and rebellious.
0: Okay, so instead of just being doing descriptive biology and strat- stratigraphy. And then making, when, when you're the president of the society, making a few remarks about biology, you're going to do something a bit more dramatic. Um,
1: I mean, Gould's first, uh,
0: Gould's first paper, uh, right. first published paper from 1960.
1: Now I can't remember exactly what the date was. I want to say 1967, but it might have been earlier was titled, is uniformitarianism necessary? You know, and of course uniformitarianism, the, the, the idea that you know we understand geological processes as being slow and continuous um uh, and and this is charles lyell's uh big uh contribution uh from the 19th century you know that's the, that's the the heart of mm. of you know what every paleontologist learned uh in in their training and here's gould as a as a graduate student writing a paper saying uh you know, maybe that's the wrong way to think about theology. Uh and you know that certainly set the tone for you know for what yeah. was to come.
0: You go straight for the bedrock to make a really bad yeah, metaphor.
1: To, and there's a I mean there there's a, a passage that I actually quote in the in the in the book um from an interview I did with, with Niles Eldridge uh, who was coming up with Gould at Columbia uh, in the in the late 1960s? And he says, you know, what Gould taught him as a graduate student was, you don't wait until you're an old man to make your important contributions. You know that 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 the young should, you know, should be kind of you know, seizing seizing the profession. And that's precisely what what these folks did.
0: Okay. So what of the, I mean, they're very canny about their revolt or and and seizing the profession. And uh, one of the things that they do do and that they think about sort of very seriously is kind of building institutions for this new paleobiology, bio right? And these include things like monographs, but also conferences and a, a, a journal um, and a society, I think. So how does, how did that work out and, and were they, how successful were they? Sure.
1: Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I um, argue in the book is that within this small group of people that were really kind of the, the heart of the paleobiological movement in the 1970s and 1980s, um, uh, different people had different fairly specific roles. So, um, Raup was the guy who was kind of coming up with the radical ideas. Um, Gould was the guy who was doing the propaganda, um, who was, you know, writing both professional and popular um, articles and books, uh that were making the case for for paleobiology uh and then uh someone that, that most people outside of paleontology won't probably be very familiar with um Tom Schaff Thomas J M Schaff who was a, a paleontologist at the University of Chicago was really the guy that um, took the institutional approach um, he was the one who uh instigated for the founding of the journal paleobiology in uh in 1975 uh he, he was really working behind the scenes and doing a lot of the, a lot of the grunt work, um, that's necessary for any movement to have a, to have a platform from, from which it can project itself. And, and, and what I argue is that, you know, these activities are very coordinated. Raup and Schopp and Gould are, um, friends and, and close colleagues. Uh, they're having meetings, informal meetings, uh, they're in correspondence all the time, you know, kind of coordinating uh, the, these different elements of, you know, what one could describe as this paleobiological revolution. And I think that it was very clear to, to all of them right from the start that the institutional side of things was going to be vitally important, that, that ideas aren't enough. You need to have places to publish. You need to be able to train students. Uh, you need to be able to get jobs, you know, for, for your students once, uh, you know, once they've, once they've finished. Um, and so I think that this, this movement wouldn't have had the success that it did have uh without this institutional agenda and tom shop uh uh was i mean i think that that uh without tom shop the 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 movement wouldn't have had that success because he is the one who really pushed the institutional agenda uh, uh most uh you know vigorously
0: and so there wasn't a sort of broad disagreement. They're quite unified about what the agenda should be and how to go about doing it.
1: Yeah, there, there was there was internal disagreement over um, certainly many kind of intellectual matters. Um, but there was a, a, a shared common commitment to this kind of central platform, which was that, you know, a um, paleontology is biology. Mm-hmm. b, uh, the history of 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 life. The the fossil record is a, a, a vital uh, body of empirical data for the understanding of evolution. Uh, C that uh, quantitative you know, mathematical techniques are um, are the, the way to understand um, this this history of life, um, and then you know D uh, that. Techniques like modeling and simulation that, that take us, um, you know, away from just the empirical fossil record are important tools. So, um, you know, on, on those four points, I think that, that the, the instigators of this paleobiological movement, and there are other people had group, uh, certainly Steve Stanley, um, and, um, you know, Niles Eldridge, who i whom i mentioned, uh, James Valentine, important paleoecologist. But, but those three people, Raup, Schopf and Gould, I think were, were, were deeply committed on those four points. Now, of course, they did disagree uh, on, on many particulars, uh, and, and many of those disagreements were very, very interesting, and, um, and I, I document a lot of those in the second half.
0: Um, and as an exercise in institution building, it's pretty successful. Um, is paleobiology that's the journal they found. Um, is it successful because they get paleontologists to read it or biologists to read it, or I guess who's who is the audience for this new uh, field?
1: Well, right, right from the get go, the idea was that this would be a journal that would be both read and contributed to by paleontologists and biologists so the um, the initial editorial board was composed of um, you know, biologists as well as paleontologists. Uh, Schopf made a real effort. Schopf was the was the founding editor. Um, made a, a real effort to recruit biologists to uh, publish papers in the first uh, several issues of the journal. Uh, always used biologists as reviewers of papers uh, alongside paleontologists, and and this was was I would say pretty successful. Um, I don't think that every evolutionary biologist you know subscribe to or or reads paleobiology but certainly um more biologists read it than were reading more traditional journals like the journal of paleontology or um um uh the the journal uh, paleontology which is which is published in britain um so it was successful there but i would say that it was probably more successful in attracting uh, a readership of paleontologists who were drawn to this new paleobiological approach. So, you know, it, it became a, a kind of focal point for paleontologists who maybe had been feeling, you know, dissatisfied, uh, with, uh, the, you know, the traditional approach to paleontology, uh, and, 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 and provided a, you know, a venue for, for, for those people and a kind of a, a, a community. Uh, people with shared interests.
0: Okay. So for pale- paleologists that wanted to do more than descriptive um, taxonomies and that sorts of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get to the ideas because, you know, institutions are important, but there's also a number of, I guess, ideas that are immediately associated with paleobiology. And I guess the most significant one or the most famous one is this idea of punctuated equilibrium. Right. Um, what is the idea? I mean, not what is the exact idea, but where do the ideas come from? How are they adapted and developed? sure um
1: well, and, and of course, I'll just say very briefly for for anybody who might be listening who isn't familiar with the theory i mean the theory of punctuated equilibrium equilibria a uh, or equi- equilibrium it's 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 um presented in both in both forms um uh, is a theory that that says that uh, the history of life is not always the slow, continuous uh development that that darwin had had proposed that in fact. Um, certain lineages go through long periods where they don't change very much. Uh, stasis can be many millions of years, punctuated by very short bursts of evolutionary change. And so what you get is a more a more jerky picture of evolution. And indeed, one of the epithets that was um, uh, thrown against uh, Gould and Eldridge by an opponent of punctuated equilibrium is that the theory is evolution by jerks. And of course... Uh, there was a double entendre there. Um, uh, so um, yeah. So um, the uh, so, so the, sorry. The, <laughs> after saying that, I, I sort of forgot the, the the first part of the question. It was it was what made it so important. Is that
0: not so much what way it? to more? But I guess where do the ideas come from? Um, right. And then you know it, they're they're just ideas sitting in well Eldridge's dissertation, right? And then they right. get magnified into this right. kind of right. discipline defining idea. Yeah
1: yeah well i I think that you know the ideas behind punctuated equilibria were around for a long time um I mean you can even trace back to Darwin ideas about rapid change rapid speciation um certainly Ernst Meyer when he presented um his uh yeah, theory of allopatric um uh speciation um, uh peripheral isolation as being central in um, the uh in the, the evolution of new species. Essentially the idea is that if you get a small population uh uh isolated uh, because of population genetics there will be faster uh, genetic change in that population and that most cases of speciation will take place amongst these, uh, these small peripherally isolated populations. I mean, that was an idea from the, from the 19, 1940s and, and all Eldridge was really trying to do in his dissertation, which was on Trinian trilobites, was apply, um, what he called sort of the dominant biological model of speciation to the fossil record and, and show that indeed what the fossil record tells us is that uh, speciation tends to take place fairly rapidly in isolated populations. He didn't present this in any way as a, as a, as a new theory uh, or any kind of revolutionary revision of evolutionary thought. But somehow, when Eldridge and Gould got together a couple of years after Eldridge finished his dissertation uh, and wrote their first paper on punctuated equilibria, uh, this idea got translated mostly thanks to Gould into a revolutionary new, uh, um, approach to understanding the history of life. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a, talking about the history of that theory, punctuated equilibrium is, is, is complicated because in, in one version, it's fairly straight, a fairly straightforward reading of what, uh, population biologists have been saying for quite a long time. Uh, in another reading, it's this radical new theory of the history of life and Even the authors themselves, Gould and Eldridge, were never very consistent in terms of sometimes it was being presented as, you know, this is just what we've known for a long time. What's the big deal? And sometimes it was, you know, uh, you know, this new radical idea that um, is going to change the way that we think about
0: evolution. Okay, so it's really I mean, Gould's contribution is this this master of rhetoric that uh, builds on things and can project them outwards, I guess. Right.
1: Sure, and and I think that you know what what happens. I spend an entire chapter on weighted yeah. uh, equilibria in in the book, uh, in part because that's exactly what I want to show. I want to show how Gould, and kind of bends it to the agenda um, of paleobiology that he is in the process in 1972, uh, really trying to to launch out into the world.
0: Okay, so by the sort of mid 70s, you've got I think what is convincingly, sort of a a discipline that's that's coherent, that's people that are talking to each other, that are doing something new, that's applying all these mathematical models to the fossil record. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things you you argue and and show is that there's actually quite a few different ways of rereading the fossil record. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the ones that I think people get the most excited about, or is perhaps the most ambitious, is what you call the nomothetic approach to um, paleontology. What is it and what's at stake in it? And I guess. Sure. Yeah. Well, this, this division between so-called nomothetic
1: and ideographic, uh, science is something that goes back to the 19th century. It's a, it's a German idea. Um, and basically the idea is that nomothetic science is science that is geared towards producing laws. Um, and ideographic science is science that basically just kind of documents empirical cases um and and Gould latched on to this. I think he liked anything that sounded uh you know fancy and german uh and uh or had Latinate you know terms or something like that, but he latched onto to this idea that what paleo what paleobiology really needed to be doing was was you know producing um laws was was making generalized. Uh, lawful, lawful statements about the history of life, and so he he starts pushing this idea early on in the in the in the 1970s, and um, you know, it gets interpreted in a variety of ways. I mean, I think one way that one early way that it gets interpreted is that uh, nomothetic paleontology will be paleontology that does not deal with specific cases. Um, so you know, does not look at a particular slice of the fossil record and try to, you know try to determine some generalities from that empirical evidence, but rather which will make broad claims, perhaps in the form of equations or simulations uh, about the history of life that are in some way idealizations of the way, you know, kind of the messy fossil record actually works. So here they're really taking a page out of, um, the theoretical ecology movement that produced uh, the theory of island biogeography and and the work of people um, people like um, uh, E.O. Wilson and MacArthur and Hutchinson who were ecologists who developed this kind of um, mathematical modeling heuristic approach to the study of uh, living populations and so I think for for Gould and for Schopf, and um, to some degree Raup in the 1970s, nomothetic paleontology was paleontology that was applying this kind of heuristic approach. We're using models as um, as a kind of a way of developing general insights into the, um, into the history of life uh, that may be oversimplifications or idealizations of what the empirical record tells us, but uh, which kind of and as, uh, if not laws, at least very broad generalizations. Um, and so that, that really is very much the agenda of paleobiology, uh, as, as Gould and, 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 um, Sean Raup are pushing it in, in the 1970s, although it does change then in the 1980s.
0: Right. Uh, and I guess there's different, I mean, I guess can you tease out, I mean, how is it exactly, is the it is it going to be heuristic, and what is the relationship exactly to the fossil record? Sure. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, in, in terms of, a, you know, a heuristic model, I mean, you can think about in, in ecology, take something like the species area law, which just tells us how many species we expect to find in a particular area. Now, that's something that's, that's based certainly on some empirical documentation, but, um, you know, it's an equation sort of like, uh you know an equation of physics that tells us something about um, in a in a general case um, how all populations should should look. And and paleontologists were looking for paleobiologists were looking for something something similar. Um, and um, what 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 Tom Schopp was really um, keen on was developing what he called gas laws of paleontology. So you know, the the gas laws tell us um something about the density of particles of of um, in a volume of gas. Um and you know it's a simple equation. And 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 really literally thought perhaps we could have simple equation that would tell us some dynamics of evolution change. Um and uh and this was very much connected to a project that Schopp and Gould and Raup um and eventually yeah, were uh working on in the nineteen seventies, which was to use uh, computers to uh, simulate in a very idealized way uh, evolutionary uh, lineages uh, to essentially simulate evolution uh, and um, generate using random generators, generate um, branching lineages and then step back and take a look at the sorts of patterns that were being produced and then compare those to the actual patterns in the fossil record as a way of testing certain hypotheses about
0: Right, and one of the hypotheses that's relevant here is just about the randomness of evolution and extinction. Right, that's exactly right.
1: Yeah. So the the main hypothesis that this uh, so-called um, um, it's called the stochastic simulation um, program uh, was trying to do was to test whether, in fact, we could um, we could potentially understand the 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 branching processes, the, the branching patterns that, that we see in the fossil record, as being um, produced purely randomly, and 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 not through, well, I guess not through the normal kinds of selective pressures that biologists uh, normally associate uh, evolution and you know, periods of speciation and extinction with. So, in, in some ways, this was a you know very radical kind of hypothesis, and you know all they really were trying to argue is that could our or um, you know randomness as a as a more prominent in 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 evolution. Not specifically in particular cases. We we had to assume that evolution was random. They certainly weren't trying to get rid of natural selection. Certainly tr- weren't trying to get a, rid of adaptation. They were simply saying let's not uh, let's not ignore uh, the factors in evolution um, that might turn out to be important in some cases.
0: Right, and that. would re- Continues to be something that they say to evolutionary biologists. One of the things that um, also comes out of the book is that how timely and time sensitive I guess the development of paleobiology was because of its dependence on computation um, and the increased computational capacity. I guess so. It's not just um, simulations that really that rely on computation, um, but the field. What else? What else are people using? I guess computers to be able to do.
1: Sure. Well, I mean the other the other. Really major way that, that computers come into play are in, uh, in, in terms of databases. So, so storing and then processing, uh, paleontological data. So people have been collecting lists of, um, you know, the, the various taxa, various taxonomic groups in the history of life for, you know, over a hundred years uh, in big books. And what computers allow you to do is, is to, you know, transfer that information uh, to an electronic format that can be sorted and analyzed in all kinds of interesting ways. So um, in addition to doing things like, yeah, making pretty simulations of uh, idealized shell forms or doing these uh, simulations of uh, randomly branching phylogenies, uh, paleontologists by the mid-1970s start putting their data into computers and then also using the computers to perform statistical analyses that would be uh, either uh, very difficult and time-consuming, or impossible uh, without without their aid.
0: Okay. Um, when Gould refers to, I mean, famously refers to rerunning the tape of life. I mean, is yeah. it a computer tape that he's talking about?
1: I, you know, that's that's something that that I've often or that 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 I've, I've I've long thought was maybe the case. Uh, you know, it's a pity that. Uh, I started this project. Oh, it's a pity that he died young, for obviously for a variety of reasons. But 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 personally, I, there are a lot of questions I would have liked to have asked him, and and that's one of them. Because of course, an audio tape doesn't make any sense. Because if you rewind a, a, an audio tape, it always plays the same thing. Right. So I tend to think that he he did have in mind a a, a computer tape. Um, because the mainframes that they were using in those days were using you know magnetic tape storage, and um, I'm thinking you know this metaphor first starts popping up around 1976, 1977, I'm thinking that he's thinking about a computer program that gets rerun on tape. But, you know, I, that, that's unfortunately, unless there's a letter somewhere in the uh, archive, uh, which which has now finally just been opened at, at Stanford University, unless there's a letter in there, that's uh, I think something that's never going to be definitively settled.
0: Okay. And it's the tapes, the, the, those tapes in particular about running these sort of simulations that, that rely on random pattern it, yeah. right yeah. exactly
1: i think that there's i mean the, the the metaphor comes up directly in the context of this this random simulation work that they that they're doing and i think that's exactly what he's thinking i think he's thinking that you know we rerun this program and every time we rerun it we get a different result you know i think that that's precisely the metaphor that he's drawing on initially when he when he presents that
0: okay So the other big idea that I that you think comes out of paleontology and that speaks to evolutionary biology relates to hierarchy and ideas about macroevolution. And you also talk there, I mean, there's a famous evolutionary biology that sort of welcomes paleobiologists back to the high table of, of uh, of the evolutionary synthesis. So what is it that um, paleobiologists are bringing to this high table?
1: Sure. So by the, by the early 1980s, uh, paleobiologists are starting to see some success in their their movement. Um, And one of the kind of most visible tokens of that success is this statement that John Maynard Smith, a famous British geneticist, makes in 1984 in the journal Nature um, in a a little opinion piece that he writes titled, uh, Paleontology at the High Table. and at the end of this essay he he makes the comment, you know paleontologists have too long been missing from the high table uh, of evolutionary theory. Uh, welcome back um, And you know uh, the, that that passage has been selectively quoted many times by paleontologists, and it seems to indicate sort of a dramatic success. you know the high table metaphor, of course, is a very British metaphor. It's a metaphor from you know the colleges in Cambridge and Oxford where uh, you know, the, the students all sit in the hall and the, and the, the fellows and the faculty sit up at a raised, uh, raised table on a raised platform at the end of the hall. And so the idea is, of course, you know, now paleontology is getting to join the big boys. Um, certainly Maynard Smith's, uh, statement does indicate that, um, biologists are beginning to accept certain ideas in paleontology. And, and, and the two ideas that he's directly referring to are, um, these new ideas about hierarchy in macroevolution, and also to new paleontological theories that are centered around extinction, uh, and, and particularly mass extinction. Uh, and and so I you know I argue at the end of the book that kind of the two crucial um, successes are um, uh, are macroevolution and and extinction theory, and and in some ways these two ideas uh, are uh, are joined. Uh, the the macroevolutionary synthesis that people like um, Gould but also Steve Stanley and Niles Eldridge and others are trying to push um, basically presents the traditional Darwinian understanding of, uh, of of evolution through natural selection as being only one component uh, or one level of a broader hierarchical understanding of of evolutionary processes that extends from the level of the gene all the way up to the level of um, the, the higher taxonomic categories, like the you know, the, the the family. Um and uh and the argument is that we can't use the same uh we can't understand the same mechanisms necessarily as operating at every single level of hierarchy. So what you know, what you get is um at the population level, is natural selection just as Darwin and then the you know the the population uh, geneticists who um, who contributed to the modern synthesis uh, proposed. But when you get up to the higher taxonomic levels, you get other kinds of processes, things like species selection, where um, where in, in, you know entire taxonomic groups can have properties that um, contribute to their overall success or, 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 or failure. On the evolutionary playing field, that are different in some ways, disconnected, or as Steve Stanley um, somewhat famously said, decoupled from uh, the lower uh, hierarchical um, processes. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of controversial idea. Um, it certainly gets a lot of attention in the in the early 1980s. But the biologists, the geneticists, even people like John Maynard Smith are constantly saying, "Show us how this works. Mm-hmm. How you know." With genetics, we can understand entities like species, uh, or higher taxonomic, uh, categories as having, um, you know, as, 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 as being vehicles for selection. You know, it's something that, that geneticists have a lot of trouble with. Um, so I would say that macroevolution is very important, uh, in terms of attracting attention to paleontology, but it's also controversial. I think that the less controversial uh, kind of success story that paleontology had was with extinction. And I think that that's really what Maynard Smith is has more in mind in the statement that he makes in 1984, which is that paleontologists really fairly definitively demonstrated that we cannot um, leave extinction out of our understanding of evolution, that extinctions, uh, and particularly mass extinctions, where, um, you know, large numbers of species, genera, even families, uh, disappear in a kind of geological blink of an eye. these things have happened in the history they have had a profound impact on uh, the development of uh, of evolution uh by you know removing uh certain certain in uh, one swipe of the brush or uh, changing the ecological and evolutionary landscape and the selective uh regimes that have existed so it's really a, a extinction I think that that is uh what what finally gets paleontology uh, taken seriously to the extent that it is taken seriously by evolutionary biologists?
0: Okay, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but why don't you tell us how you're going to continue being a historian of paleontology? What are you working on now?
1: Projects. Um, I'm writing a book on extinction, actually, where I'm really trying to do is take a look at the relationship between biology. Ideas about extinction from the mid 19th century uh, up to the present day, um, the relationship between those biological ideas and cultural values that surround um, uh, extinction and endangerment and diversity. So I'm trying to look at the ways that the biologists have have influenced how we think about uh, the the kind of diversity of the biological world uh, through their discussions of extinction and particular cultural values at particular times have influenced what biologists have said about extinction. So in the 19th century, I argue there was a a lack of real um, appreciation or concern for what we now call biodiversity,
0: which is a
1: major concern. And and one of my arguments is that um, uh, what changes is our understanding of extinction. Um, So that's that's a book that I'll be writing over the Next couple of years, hopefully a bit shorter than this last book that I wrote, and uh, and 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 aimed at a, a bit a bit of a broader audience than than the than the book that I that I just wrote. Um, and then another project is uh, a, project, a collaborative project at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science where I work uh, uh, on the history of of data and databases. Um, so we have a big project where we're trying to historicize and databases became so important in a variety of sciences, and my angle on that is looking at the development of uh, data collection, um, storage, and analysis in natural history disciplines like paleontology.
0: Okay, thanks so much, David. That was my conversation with David Sepkowski about his new book, Rereading the Fossil Record, The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. For the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society, I'm Patrick Slaney. Thanks.